Nicole, why did you decide to apply for TV writing programs? I had been trying on my own for uh, many, many years uh, to break into the business. And I had been lucky enough to have some writers who were already in the field read me and encourage me, but nobody was really able to help me get representation or do any of that stuff you have to do to finally break through. And so the writing programs were sort of the best option for somebody trying to get their foot in the door. And I applied to all of them. I had varying success at all of them. I had no luck at Warner Brothers. I have never been able to move the needle in the Warner Brothers writing program. I made the finals at Disney twice, but then didn't make the last cut. Uh, and, you know, I had applied to all of them multiple times. And when I finally applied to the CBS Writers Program and got in, it was really a case of I, I was beating my head against the wall, right? And I was just like, how much more of this can I do? And I had a backup plan in progress. I had started a cookie business and I was like taking orders online. And I was baking in a kitchen that uh, used to be in Pasadena, but sadly is no longer there where you could rent a commercial kitchen space by the hour. So like I was getting up and running and doing all this stuff with that. And I had a conversation with myself where I was like, well, you're going to always write. It's not like you're going to quit writing. But I was just like, I can't keep doing this. I can't keep applying to these fellowships and all those sorts of things. And what happened basically was I went to my day job. And my boss yelled at me for caring too much about how I did my job. And it was just so antithetical to how I had been brought up by my very like military Catholic black parents to like do your best at everything and always overperform and do all those things. And I couldn't make sense of it. And I came home and I had cried myself to sleep basically because I was just like, well, I don't want to do this either. Like this is terrible. And I woke up in the morning and I thought, you know, try one more time. Like, is there anything you can still apply to? Just try. And for the first time in the history of the CBS Writers Program, except for when the pandemic happened, they had delayed the application period by one month and I had two days to get a script in. And because my mentors were always making me write, I had a script ready to go <laughs> and I put it in the mail. And I got it postmarked, and next thing I knew, I was in the program. Wow. So many questions with that. First off, just curious, what was that script? It was a spec episode of The Closer, which was one of my favorite shows. And, you know, it was funny because a lot of people had said to me, like, I don't know if you should spec that because nobody in the business reads the, you know, watches this show. And I was like, I'm going to write a show that I know I can write just balls out like with all the passion all the joy i can put into it and i love this show and so that's the script i'm gonna write and i had multiple people tell me once it got into the you know the writing program circuit and people were reading it that they don't watch the show but they loved the story and they had to see how it ended and so that's always my advice to young writers now is like write the spec that you of a show you love whether you think people watch it or not because good writing leaps off the page and i do think young writers should still be writing specs it is my advice to them one just have one for a show you love because there are showrunners who will not staff staff writers unless they see a spec it's not common anymore but there there is a growing movement among showrunners to get back to that because 
writing a spec script of television is literally the job you're trying to get. You have to write someone else's show in their voice, in the exact format that they like, and you have to get as close to it as you can. So <laughs> that's the job. So why not practice it before you get the job? Were they telling you to write other things that were quote unquote popular at the time? There were definitely other shows that were more popular. I think a lot of people were writing, you know, The Walking Dead. Um, there, were, there were lots of shows and I typically as a TV fan will love one or two of the really popular things, but I tend to love more bread and butter shows. Like I was a huge Castle fan. I was a huge fan of Person of Interest and Elementary and like those were the shows that I wanted to spend my time on and less so, you know, The Walking Dead or Mad Men and because they just were not my, they were not the kind of shows I get joy from. And so people were like, well, you have to write, you know, you have to write a more serious drama. And I was like, do I though? <laughs> I feel like I don't. And so I'm really glad I stuck to my guns because it worked out. Um, what most people tell young writers now is to be writing pilots and they should be absolutely be writing their own original stories. But a, a really great pilot isn't proof to me that you can write my TV show. So that's why I always tell people they should still have a spec around for a current show that's airing, just in case someone asks for it. And a show that they really care about because yeah. that's gonna show. Yes. Right. I think especially because right when, what was happening when I broke in was everyone was specking the same shows. So if you could stand out somehow by having a show that they were not used to reading, right away you were like, oh, well this is a different show. This isn't the 17th Mad Men spec I'm getting. This is, what is this closer spec? And so it is another way to stand out if you're not doing these, the shows that everybody else is doing. Were you able to go back to that job and give your two weeks? So interestingly, what happened with that job, I uh, continued doing it while I was doing the CBS program um, because you know it's not a paid program. And then, so I had to keep paying my bills. And uh, I also continued to do it during Writers on the Verge, which I did after the CBS program. And that was about the time that I was like, you know what, even if I have to take a job, you know, cleaning houses or doing whatever, I can do hard work. I can work as hard as other people who are paying their bills. I can't do this job anymore. And I put my notice in and two weeks later, I got my first staff writing job. <laughs> So I always tell people, I feel like the universe was like, well, she means it this time. <laughs> so we better help her out. Wow, what a great story. And the cookie business? The cookie business went away because I was too busy uh, writing. However, the baking did not go away. So my writer's rooms are always very happy. They get lots of cookies. Everyone in my life likes to get baked goods for Christmas. So, you know, it, 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 the baking part still happens, just not the business part. <laughs> How many TV writing programs can you name? There is the ABC Disney Fellowship, and some of them have tweaked their names slightly before I say them all. So trust me, when you look them up, it might be worded a little bit different. But ABC Disney Fellowship, NBC's... Uh, I, I can't remember what they're calling it now, but they, they did reenact their writing program. So just look for NBC TV writing program and you'll find it. Uh, the now Viacom Writers Mentoring Program, which is the CBS program now. There is, um, oh goodness, the, the Warner Brothers program is still there. 
there have been fellowships and I'm not as wired into these, but I know for a while, um, uh, Sundance was doing one, I believe that was a like TV incubator for new writers. Um, there have been other like, uh, oh, I'm going to forget the name of the production company. Ron Howard's company, Imagine, has done their own writing program where they've encouraged writers to submit and have done some stuff. So it's really, if you if you go look up writing programs, there are a lot of opportunities now that didn't exist. Um, I'm currently a mentor in a newer one. It's called Mentorship Matters. We just finished our application period on the 26th and we got 800 applications. So we'll, you know, our readers are going through that process now of reading everything and sort of narrowing the field. Um, but that one started uh, some wonderful people um, Rayal Tucker, Gianna Sobel, and Carol Kirshner all got together during the pandemic, sort of post uh, George Floyd's murder, and decided like, what what can we do? Like we're full of anger and the world is crazy. What can we do? And they came up with the idea for this program where we give people who haven't been assistants, haven't had a chance to access Hollywood yet, the opportunity to be read and be mentored and see if they can break through. How many writers get into these programs a year? Not just the ones that you put in for, but like all of them in general? You know, it'd be hard to say. I mean, they all, the numbers vary. Like the CBS program usually takes anywhere from five to eight people, I believe. Um, you know, I think we had eight people in my NBC class. I think Disney usually takes 10. So it's sort of, I mean, mentorship matters. We had more than that because as many mentors as we had, because each mentor got one writer. So we had, I want to say 35-ish mentors. So we all had a mentee. So it really sort of depends on what the program can accommodate. And so for mentorship matters, you said 800 just for the, the is it the first year that it's We finished the first year. So this is going to be for year number two starting in the fall. Wow, 800. And this is um, globally? It's, yeah, I think it was, if I remember correctly, anyone could apply, but you had to be able to be um, in the U.S. to do the program because they there are like panels that have to occur and there's staffing opportunities. Part of what we do in that program is use our network to help our mentees. So introducing them to reps, to showrunners to other writers that they can connect with and you kind of need to be in the vicinity to do that even though we have zoom now it's easier i think so i do think there's a u.s requirement but i can't remember entirely do you have to pay to be in the program or do they pay you most of the programs don't pay but you do not have to pay to be in them they are um, investment programs that the networks have and the studios have come up with to try to to grow homegrown talent with a, an angle on diversity and inclusion. So the ABC Disney program has historically been the only one that pays its writers and they pay like, I believe it's like $50,000 a year while you're in it. But it does mean, and you have a greater chance of staffing because they can put you out to the entire ABC Disney family, right? For staffing opportunities. But it does mean you get paid that salary. You're not getting paid a staff writer salary. Um, most of the other programs, what they do is the studio has money set aside. So if, for instance, when I got my job on Ironside, the studio supplemented my salary. So it didn't come out of the show budget. 
And that's how they try to encourage people to give writers like me an opportunity. And then if you prove yourself, you get to stay on regardless. Um, and they'll, you know, you have to make the showrunner be willing to pay for you. <laughs> I do think there's a movement now to start adjusting that a little bit because what we've been finding is that showrunners will use the free rider, not all, some, let me make sure that's clear. Some showrunners will use the free rider for as long as the studio will pay for them and then not bring them back. And so the studios are now looking at how can they make it um, an encouraging factor to keep the writers going forward. So they're looking at how they can change that payment system a little bit to, you know, to encourage retention. What are you learning inside of these programs? They all are structured a little bit different, but I would say in general, the big takeaways are, first of all, you're going to write a new piece of material and you're going to do it with professional mentorship. So this is going to be getting notes from people who give studio and network notes to real professional writers all the time, right? So it's a little bit different than your writer's group giving you notes or your friends. And it gives you a sense of what that's like when you're on staff, when you're developing to get notes from those kind of professionals. So hopefully you have a great new piece of material to help you secure representation and to go out for staffing. The programs will also prep you for staffing in terms of executives coming in and meeting with you and liking you. So they'll consider sending your name to their showrunners that they're working with who are looking for you know, new writers. Also, you get practice in how to handle meetings with showrunners, how to go through a general meeting. Because like I always tell people, when I got in the CBS program, I would have treated a showrunner meeting like a regular job interview because I had no idea what it was. It is very much not that. It is really just go in and have a conversation with someone because the truth of a meeting, a general meeting or a showrunner meeting is that you're, they already like your writing. That's how you got in the room. So now you're there to show who you are, to be your best self, to make them laugh if you're doing a comedy, to tell interesting stories if you're doing a drama that's you know, tied to your experience, whatever it is, and show them that basically you're a nice, normal person, you're not gonna make their life harder, and they wouldn't mind being in a room with you for 10, 12 hours a day. And that's half the trick, is just being able to go in and be relaxed and you know, do those meetings. And so that's a big element of almost every program is teaching you how to handle that, that prep and how to get ready for those meetings. What are the key benefits that TV writing programs offer? I mean, first of all, it's that, that experience of meeting some executives, meeting some managers to get practice for how to do those kind of meetings and also introductions, right? I got my first agent through an introduction from one of the programs. I got my manager through an introduction from one of the programs. So that helps you find representation if you don't have it. I met tons and tons of executives, some of whom have become close friends over the years from that, those writing programs. So you have that connection base that you start to build out. It gives you a cohort of writers to be your support system as you build your career because you need people to, you know, if something crazy happens in the room, you need someone to be like on, you know, on your break texting going, what is this craziness that just happened? Is it just me or is this crazy? And they can be like, nope, that's crazy. Just remember, take a deep breath. It's all going to be fine. <laughs> um, or to get advice on things when you're, you know, you're stuck on a, a story point 
and you're scared to go to the showrunner and you can have a friend who's like, no, it's better. Go ask the showrunner before you make a mistake in the script, like do it, those kind of things. And then it's also just the, the community that you start to build. I hate networking. It's like one of my least favorite words. <laughs> I used to hate when they would be like, we're having a writer's mixer and you know, I would have to go. And full disclosure, I still hate the idea of them. What has happened over the years though, is that I would force myself to go. I would be like, just go for an hour, just go for one hour and then talk to a few people and you can leave. And because I have done that, because the writing programs so often commingle and have crossover, you develop this whole network of people that you are friendly with and who you like and who are interesting to talk to. And you build this whole community. So when one of my friends becomes a showrunner and it's like, I need a great BIPOC mid-level writer, who do you know? We all can respond to that because they just reach out to their people. And then we all are like, oh, this person, this person's great. I'll, have, I'll, I'll get a script and send it to you. And we can support each other and help each other as we all grow through our careers. So that's honestly one of the most valuable things that comes out of it. And you're kind of with them for life, so to speak? A little bit, yeah. You know, it's like the my class of uh, from CBS and from NBC, we're all still in touch. We're all still very close. We, you know celebrate each other's wins we commiserate over our losses <laughs> it's it's you know it's, it's your little tv family that you build and then as you build your career every room you go to you're going to meet people who you want to know for the rest of your life you know it won't be everyone but there's going to be people in every room that you're like now you are stuck with me <laughs> do you think you would have broken into television had you not gone through one of these programs I don't think I would have, to be honest. I think I had tried everything I could think of outside of the programs. And the one thing I had not been able to do was work as an assistant in television. And because I put myself through undergrad and graduate school and had very hefty student loans, I just couldn't afford to. I did not have the support system to allow me to make what assistants make and then also keep a roof over my head. And so that was just never going to be a, a thing I could do. And even when I tried to do it, people were like, you have a master's degree. You cannot be a PA. And I was like, no, no, I can. I really can. <laughs> Trust me, I will make it work. <laughs> and they were like, no, we're not going to, we don't believe you. So that opportunity wasn't there. And I think were it not for the programs, I'm not sure how I would have ever made it happen. I mean, I would have continued to write, certainly. Um, would it have been enough to finally get a door to open? I don't know. Had you been tempted to leave your master's degree or even your bachelor's off a of resume? Because there's some survival jobs here in LA that pay some pretty good wages. Do you think they felt you were overqualified and it scared them away? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and for me, like, you know, the job that I was doing, the day job, as much as I hated it, it allowed me to survive and it allowed me to, you know, pay all my bills and pay all my loans and keep a roof over my head. And so it was just like, look, this is the way it's going to be. And, you know, it could have, there, it was that push pull of, yes, I could have taken the master's degree off my resume, 
But so much of what I had learned about how the business worked, I had learned because of that master's program, because this was before the writing fellowships, right? So I was also cutting down the sense of experience I had. So it was like, eh, you know, I'm just gonna try it and they'll say yes or they'll say no. And they always said no, but I'm still here anyway. <laughs> what advice do you have to other writers who are considering these kinds of programs? My biggest advice is, you know, when you're, when you're thinking about what to submit, whether it's a spec or a pilot, I think CBS might be the only program left, or Viacom might be the only program left that's requiring specs, uh, much to my dismay. But whatever it is you're submitting, if you were going to be identified by one piece of writing, that's the script you submit. Because you only really have that one shot. And then the next year, if you didn't get into any of them, you have to have the next script that is the script that you would want to represent you. So that's why I say you always have to be writing because you always need new material. Even once you start your career, people will have read the two samples that you broke in with. And so you have to have new samples to send out places. So, you know, always be writing. And when you get to the points in those applications where they ask you, you know, there's always either essay questions or a video element. And it's like, you know, what do you have to contribute to a writer's room? Really think about what your life uniquely offers to your storytelling. It's not about how much you love TV. It's not about how you've dreamed of being a writer since you were a kid. It's about, I have gone through X, Y, and Z in my life and not trauma, just experiences you've been through. It can be that you, you lived in 17 places because your dad was in the military or that you love to hike and you've hiked seven of the craziest places in the world to hike. Whatever it is that's special about you, you want to bring out in those questions and that response because that's the stuff that people are looking for. It's like, what's the special sauce you bring into the room? Because, you know, almost everyone, and I do say almost because not a blanket statement. Almost everyone who wants to be a TV writer loves TV. So it's like, why you? And that's the question you're really answering. What were you doing the first six months before you were accepted into the TV writing program? I was working on my baking business. I um, had developed a, um, a brochure of all like the different types of special things that I could do. And I was gonna go out to some uh, wedding fairs and try to drum up business doing favors for weddings. And I was in fact at the kitchen baking all day to go to a food show, came home and got the email saying, congratulations, you're a semi-finalist for the CBS Writers Program. Please call and schedule your personal interview. So it was really like, a crazy, <laughs> like the universe was like, she's too good at the cookie thing. We gotta, we gotta pivot back and put her where she belongs. And so you rented a kitchen because that's how you could get it sort of permitted to, to yeah, do the cooking. Yeah, yeah. It was um, long before there was any thought of, you know, allowing people in LA County to bake from home or cook from home to sell it. And so, um, you know, Pasadena has its own licensing requirements and all that. So I had to do all the research to figure all that stuff out had to figure out how to get the right insurance. I mean, it was a lot, but uh, you know, I toughed it out and figured it out and got my business up and running. And then Hollywood was like, nope, change of plans. <laughs> how many TV show scripts and pilots had you written before you were hired? 
Oh goodness. I think I have this officially written down somewhere. I want to say that I had written 12 specs and I had four pilots. And the last spec I wrote was for person of interest and I finished it a few weeks before I got my first TV writing job. So it turned out to be the last one I ever had to write. And how long, like how many pages are, are let's say a normal spec? Most specs you wanna, I mean, most TV scripts in general, especially back then, range anywhere from 52 to 60 pages. You really wanna try not to go over 60 because it's a big ask on the reading time. Nowadays, if you're on staff, some shows come in much shorter. Um, our scripts on SWAT are 46 pages. So you have to be really, you know, very specific about the word choice. You can get it all in, but also <laughs> keep it to a minimum. Um, but yeah, so anywhere from like 52, if it's a drama script, if it's a comedy script, it's usually right around 30-ish pages. What key factors uh, played a part in you being hired? I think one of the big ones was uh, my life experience. So I broke into television working in cop shows and I had put myself through my undergraduate years working as a police dispatcher. And I would work graveyard shifts and then I would get off at 7.45 in the morning, drive to school, go to school all day, come home and sleep, go back to work. <laughs> and thankfully I was allowed to do homework at my desk when nothing was happening. So <laughs> it's the only way I got through it. And that experience was always appealing to people who make those kind of shows. And in broadcast television, as we know, those shows are very prevalent. And, you know, I could talk about things that were real and that pertain to those stories. And so that was a big calling card for me was being able to to bring that real life professional experience in. Um, it was also important that I was a black woman that I could speak to matters of, you know, inequity for our characters that we were writing, that I could talk about what it's like to be a black woman who's the only black employee in a play, you know, that I could talk about those things. And I was willing to share those stories in the room. Um, and then, you know, that I was prepared, that I had written and written and written and written and had built my muscle to the point that someone was like, okay, She's ready to do at least the basic part of this job because you will only get stronger and get better as you continue your career. But you have to, there's, there's such a line between writing a decent script and writing a professional script. And it's really about the, the passion and the fluidity that you can put on the page that it starts to feel a little cinematic that they can picture it when they read it. And it's not just, you know, she walks to the door. It's like, you know, she walks to the door and it dwarfs her and it's like you're conveying a real image with it. So you learn all that by writing and by sharing your work with other writers. The biggest mistake that I think newer writers make is wanting to hold all their scripts really close and not let other people read them. But you only get better when other people read it and say to you, you know, I love this idea and this character's great. I got a little confused through here because I wasn't quite sure why the character was doing this or why we went to this place suddenly. And you take those notes and you go back and make it better because that is TV writing. That is the rest of your life. If you want to write TV is people will give you notes. You will go make it changes. You will turn it back in. <laughs> Even if you're the showrunner, the studio and the network get to give you notes. 
So you will take their notes. You will, you know, unless you're one of those writers who declares you never take notes. Uh, but I do not know many of those. <laughs> Didn't know that existed. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yes. There are, there are some of them and I'm like, okay, you do you. But uh, I take, I, you know, I take good notes. I take good notes. Sometimes there are good notes. <laughs> What do you think is more common for a new writer in a TV room to want to hold back some of their work or want to hold back their personal experience and maybe not speak to what their life was because they don't want to offend other people in the room or make them uncomfortable? Yeah, I think that they're kind of part and parcel of the same thing. I think new writers in a writer's room have to learn that balance of when do I speak, when do I not speak? And some of it's just literally the timing of it, right? Figuring out your window to say the thing you want to say, how to do it without cutting off another writer, how to do it without crapping on somebody else's pitch, even if you don't like it, right? But to be able to be like, hey, that might work. Also, what if we did blah -de blah so that you're not, you know, sideswiping them. You're just saying, here's another idea. And internally you're like, because I don't like that idea. <laughs> Or you're being additive or you're inspired by what someone said and you're like, oh my God, I love that. Also, could we add this to it? And then maybe it gets better or maybe your suggestion gets pushed to the side, but you made your suggestion. And a lot of new writers are very intimidated when they get to the writer's room. And it's a lot, especially if you are, say, on a broadcast show with like 10 other writers, I'd estimate eight of those writers are pretty solidly experienced. And so it's just fast and furious of story pitches and this and that. And what if we did this? And great, let's have the character move here. And let's use this setting. And it starts to be overwhelming. And so the advice that I was given that I pass on to all new writers is try to say something you think is of value in the morning and something of value after lunch. In the beginning, that's all anybody's going to expect of you. In fact, they will be real impressed that they got those two things because you're a staff writer and those people all understand that. They all know this is new to you. They all know you're trying to find your footing. So you don't have to come in and sit there in silence unless you have a showrunner who's told you that the staff writers are not supposed to speak and it does happen. But in most rooms, you're so scared to speak that that's why you're not speaking. And so you need to find your voice and speak. You also need to be careful not to try to dominate the conversation and take over. You need to pick up on the social cues of when the showrunner's like, yeah, I don't, I don't know about that. And stop talking and let someone else pitch something. You may come back to your idea, but if you keep pushing, it's going to cause some friction in the room. So it's, it's really learning that is is the first several weeks for any staff writer is trying to figure out how this all works and when do I speak and when do I pull back. I'm a big proponent of having a notebook in front of you because as you have an idea, you can write it down. And if someone else is still talking, A, you won't forget it. And B, because you have it writing down, you're not panicked about getting it out. And if someone else pitches the same idea before you do, at least you can take comfort in the fact that you were on the right track. But it's also a lesson in, right, your idea was right, so you can pitch it. It's fine. And take the chance and pitch it. In terms of the personal stories, I think good writer's rooms foster an environment where writers feel safe to share their stories. 
And by good writer's rooms, I mean safe writer's rooms, places where the showrunner has said up front, this is not a place where we bully each other. This is not a place where I'm going to tolerate that kind of behavior. Everybody's opinion here matters. At the end of the day, I'm going to decide what we're doing. So you don't even need to fight about it because it's up to me. And that allows people to feel safe saying, you know, I did have this experience when I was a kid where like I got lost for a day and my parent like, because that's a vulnerable thing to talk about, right? But it may help the story. And you want your writers to feel safe to help build the best story. Toxic rooms, rooms where showrunners yell and scream at each other, nobody in that room is giving their best. Nobody is telling their best stories because they don't feel safe. And so to respond to that kind of behavior, everybody pulls back a little bit. And it's, and you should, because you need to protect yourself in that environment. How much does your acceptance of fate factor into your writing career? For me, I am a firm believer that I have always ended up where I was supposed to. And, you know, I'm sure there are people who are like, well, you know, you just want to believe that because it's, it makes it easier when stuff doesn't go your way. Yes, it does. It does make it easier. But I also think it's true. So a perfect example of this is after I finished Writers on the Verge, I, I probably did somewhere around 30 meetings that year, which is a lot. My agent and my manager had me on general after general after general, and I had four showrunner meetings. And for those jobs, literally every single one was, it's between you and one other person. And one other person got all the jobs. And two of those people were my friends. So I could have chosen to be sad about it, or I could be happy for my friends. And I could be sad for myself for a day. I gave myself a day to cry it out. <laughs> and then I had to be like, what, what's next? What do I do next? And so what I did next was write the pilot that got me my first job. And I, had, I didn't know that at the time. I was just like, okay, I'm going to go write this thing that I want to write. And I entered a pilot in the Austin Film Festival and made it to the semifinals and got to go to Austin for the first time. And it was just like, what can I do that's positive for my career? What happened later was that most of those jobs... I heard stories about them that made me very grateful that they were not my jobs. And then I got hired at Ironside where you will hear lots of stories about writers who go into their first room and especially if they're a diversity hire, right, as I was. And it's a lot of like oh, the diversity writer and bad attitudes and that kind of stuff. I went into a room where my showrunner had literally basically had the attitude of, I hired these two staff writers because I like them and I think they're talented. All of you support them. And they did. And so every writer in that room helped me in some way, taught me something. And I still am in contact with almost all of them. And, you know, they all helped build me to the next level of my career. Now, that is not the way it is in a lot of rooms. It's the way it should always be. But I ended up there because I needed those people. And then my next job I went to was this show called Allegiance. And it turned out that somebody I had met tangentially through one of the writing programs was going to be one of the people in charge of that show. 
and it, he came on after I had already had my meeting, so pure luck and happenstance that we ended up there together. He knew that I was the kind of person who worked hard, so he told the other two executive producers that basically, like, Nicole's always going to be here. We got her. And three weeks into the job, my showrunner joked with them and said, you know we're all going to work for Nicole later, Because right? <laughs> that's how I had been brought up, was to always be there and be ready to do whatever needs to be done. And because I kept that work ethic, even when our show got difficult, even when we had struggles getting scripts out, I always kept that attitude. And George Nolfi, who was our showrunner, ended up asking me to co-write a movie with him because of that work ethic, because he knew that he could count on me to do what needed to be done. And I wasn't gonna like, I don't know how to handle all this. He was like, nope, you can, you can do this. And so that's how I ended up co-writing The Banker, which is my first feature film. So, you know, that, that all feels meant to be to me. And so, and I feel like every job I've ended up at, I ended up at a job, I interviewed for my dream show while I had an offer for another job. And the dream show was like, we love her, but we think we're gonna hire someone else. So I took the other job. I met one of my best friends in life at that job. So if I had gone to my dream job, would I ever have met this person? Probably not, but she's so important to my life. I'm just glad that I did. So that's how I look at it. I think every place you end up is of value to you. I think even hard jobs teach you how not to do the job, right? Bad rooms teach you how to never treat people, how to not let the process go off the rails. They teach you how to be humane in the face of adversity because it's what you wish someone had done for you. So you hopefully take that, you know, and carry it on with you. So I just think, you know, embrace every experience as I'm supposed to learn something here. And you will. And then it's going to make you a better writer and later a better showrunner. What's that day like or the morning like when you've had your, I, I've heard you say before, you, you're allowed to grieve a project that's lost or whatever, but you only give yourself this short window of time. Yeah. So what's the next morning like when it's like, okay, Nicole's not allowed to feel bad anymore. We're going to get up. And how do you, how do you give yourself that pep talk? What's that like? It's, um, you know, it's very much a thing of, it really is. It's like you get up, I have, walk my dog, I have breakfast, I have some coffee, and I'm like, okay, what's the one thing you can do that is a forward step? It doesn't have to be a lot. I don't have to start a new script today. I don't have to know what I'm going to pitch next if a development project went away. It's just like, what can you do today? And sometimes it's just reaching out to a writer friend and being like, hey, can I talk to you about this? Because it was rough and I just want to talk it through with someone. And you do. And then you're like, okay. And then the next day you're like, okay, talking to my reps, what is, what is the project we should focus on next? Or I'm like, hey, I got three books I'm going to read and see if any of them would make a good pilot or whatever it is. But if you wallow in it, because this business is so much rejection that it's just going to debilitate you. And so you, everyone has to find their way of being able to be like, oh, that sucked, and then let it go. <laughs> because, and, and if you need more than a day, take more than a day. But like, I can't spend more than, more than 48 hours in that place because then it's harder for me to get out. So I, I just say to myself like, okay, this is your weekend to be sad. And then we have to move on because 
it's all, it's always like, okay, what's next? What's next? What do I do next? Because you're going to work jobs you love and the show's going to get canceled. You're going to write a pilot script that everyone says is amazing and the network's going to not pick it up. You, so it's just, it's a lot of no, and you have to be able to say, okay, I'm going to do this next. Should new TV writers focus on pitching their shows to studios and networks? So what's happening now, I would say the trend in this business is if you are a writer who's actively staffing, there, there is a limit to your ability to pitch. Most studios contractually will not allow you to start pitching projects until you reach like co-producer level. So unless you already had something that another studio was interested in and you can do what's called a carve out where it's protected from your contract, you really are not developing if you're staffing constantly. If you staffed once and then you're having trouble finding another job, your reps are gonna be like, well, what do you have that we can take out and pitch? because it's a way to keep you in the game. It's a way to get you out there meeting people. And sometimes it happens. Sometimes newer writers sell shows and they get made and that's amazing. The biggest obstacle when you are a newer, lower level writer and you sell a show is that you do not have the skill set to be a showrunner. So what will generally happen unless you are some wonderkind that they're gonna, <laughs> they're gonna just decide you have all it takes to be a showrunner is that an experienced showrunner is gonna be attached to your show. And hopefully you will have some input in how that choice is made. Hopefully you can bring some names to the table if there's you know producers you really admire, executive producers and showrunners that you really like or who's, who you, a friend of a friend told you this person's like the greatest human being and they might be available to run it, bring their name in. A lot of times the studios or the networks will already have a list of people they want you to consider. You should be able to talk to those people and give your input on who you think is best and like this is the person I think should run it with me. Usually it's fine. Um, because, you know, most of the people who get brought in to run a show for a different creator are on overall deals and they're looking to help you get your show off the ground so they can go make their stuff. They're really not invested in taking your show over. There are, however, times that that happens to, pre to people and, and this town is full of those stories of, you know, brilliant writer made the show and then big dog producer basically pushed them out the door and it happens. And I think you shouldn't let fear of that stop you. If someone's interested in making your show and you're an inexperienced writer, you just need to educate yourself on how to best protect yourself. And don't try to protect yourself by being like, it's my show, like you can't tell me anything about it. You have to build that partnership because TV is a team sport. And anyone who's not supporting the team is a problem. So you don't want to be a problem and then lose any say in what happens to your show that you created. So it's a tricky thing, but it does happen. And, you know, reps will encourage young writers to be writing pilots and trying to, you know, get interest and even have them out pitching. But it's always with the understanding that you will probably not be running that show. And is that the scenario where someone would say, I, I don't take notes, is if it's actually their, their idea, they're the ones that came up with the show idea? The I don't take notes people are um, 
you know, just certain showrunners of a certain personality. There was a pretty widely publicized article where like Taylor Sheridan says he doesn't take notes. Okay, like, I guess he doesn't, you know. Um, there have been some other writers that have sort of expressed that. Again, I think that's a, if that's your personality and that's how you move through the world, then I understand that that's, you're not gonna be different, right, in this process. You're gonna try and do exactly the thing you always do, which is like, I know best, so I'm gonna do it my way. I think most writers are not that person. Most writers are, understand that someone else might have an idea that's additive to what they've written. And it's very rarely, even scripts that I think are brilliant, very rarely that I'm not like, oh, this could be better though. <laughs> like sometimes there's just little things that sometimes you're so close to it, you can't see it. And so having other writers around you or having a good executive say, hey, this script is brilliant. The one thing I would say to you is these transitions are a little confusing and a director's not gonna understand how you want it done and you know, the audience may not track it. So let's think about how to rethink that. That's a good note. Like you need to look at that because they're concerned about your show succeeding as opposed to, I just don't understand magic. Why is there magic in this show? That's not helpful if they've bought a magic show, but <laughs> sometimes it happens. Should there be a time limit, let's say for a newer writer should expect to work five to 10 years in a writer's room before they actually think they can go and pitch their own show? Or, or that's just, there's no real hard and fast rule? There's no real hard and fast rule. There used to be, definitely. Um, you know, I interviewed with some showrunners who had come up in the era before I really came into the business. And it really used to be very like, you just don't run a show till you become a co-EP on other people's shows. Um, and co-EP being the top level of writer before you're an executive producer. Nowadays, it's it's much more free flowing. It's you know I know people who have been sold shows as staff writers who have sold shows as you know uh, producers, which is pretty right solid in the middle, and then also as co EPs. So it's kind of all over the place now. I think what I would say is really think about if if all you're focused on is that you want to sell your own show staff as much as you can and just know what you need to learn, which is you need to go to set and produce an episode. That's probably gonna happen working in broadcast television more than it's ever gonna happen in a streaming situation. So take a broadcast job and you need to know how post works and you need to read as much as you can to help educate you about how this all works. I. Um, you know, Carol Kirshner has a great book that's called Hollywood Game Plan that really sort of talks about the, the business side of the business. Um, Bethany Rooney wrote this amazing book on directing for television that I recommend to writers because it talks about what everyone on set does. So you can really take in what all the jobs are. And because you get all these words thrown at you, like, you know, someone's like a grip and someone's a this and someone's a that. And you're like, what does all that mean? I don't know. Like, because a lot of us didn't go to film school, so we don't know. So you get the book and you read what people do. And that'll help prepare you because what you don't want to do is just assume you know because you're a brilliant writer how to do it all. And then suddenly you're a showrunner. Even today, actually, John Wells just launched this thing um, on his website where it's like the showrunner's corner where he's giving out advice to people about how to do the job because 
we have seen, thanks to streaming, this gap open up in skill sets for writers because those of us who have worked in broadcast television have produced episodes, have gone to post, have that experience. But people who've like their whole career's been on streaming shows, never been to set, never allowed to see cuts, to haven't been to post. And so there's this gap in, in the skills you need to run a show happening for a whole generation of writers. And so uh, there's a lot of concern about how to fix that. So I was so pleased today to see that John was like, well, here's a step, here's this. <laughs> Does every writer need to know how to write a pilot? Yes. Yes, it is absolutely a necessary skill because it's how you, it's your calling card to get executives to be interested in you, to get showrunners to hire you most of the time, um, except for those picky ones like me who like to see a spec if you're breaking into the business. And it's ultimately what you will be doing later in your career because once you reach that mid-level to upper-level point, your reps are gonna want you to start developing. And developing is all about writing pitch documents and then hopefully selling a show and writing a pilot. So it is absolutely something everyone should know how to do. And you know there are plenty of books out there about how to do it. Um, I wanna say, I think Cam Miller has a, a really good book about writing a pilot. Um, Jen Grisanti has all kinds of great material about writing a pilot. So you know there's resources out there to help you figure out how to demystify it a little bit. But it's, you know, if you, if you love to tell stories, it's just a specific way of telling a story. How did you learn to write a pilot? I learned how to write a pilot, first of all, by just being a huge student of television. I, there was a time when uh, my friends Charles Murray and Terrence Paul Winter would tease me mercilessly about how I watched every show on television. And it used to be true. It is no longer true. There's too many shows. I can't do it. But I would sort of, I have a list of pilots that like when I was writing a new pilot and I was like, oh, the tone doesn't feel quite right. If it was gritty, I had a list of pilots that I would go watch to sort of get my brain in that, in that place, not to take anything from the pilot, but just to have the tone in my head of like, right, right, right. This is what I'm going for and then go back to work on mine. So studying existing pilots is incredibly valuable. And it'll get, you know, give you some guideposts for how they did it, what the pacing of those pilots were. You know, different types of pilots can have a different rhythm to them. If you're doing a big like fantasy show and you have to you know, launch it in the pilot, what some shows put in that pilot's gonna be very different than if you're launching an ensemble drama full of a bunch of characters who work in a hospital, right? The, the specifics of what you need in those pilots are very different. So I would study pilots like the one you wanna write and get a feel for you know where they put the act breaks if it's a show that has act breaks. You should always be breaking your stories with act breaks, P.S. Even if you're not gonna have them in your script, even if it's a streaming show, break it with act breaks because it will keep you with a nice ebb and flow of action and emotion in your episode. Unlike some shows that you watch on streaming where nothing happens for like 37 minutes and then the last 10 minutes, everything happens. So give yourself that break, write it like you have to do a commercial break and it'll really help you find some good um, ups and downs in your storytelling. Of those lists of pilots in the different sort of genre or 
or style that that you wanted to sort of delve into did they age out after a while did did things become too slow after maybe 10 years you know how as life has sped up I would say no. I think great pilots are always great pilots. You know, some of the ones that I still go back to, like I tell young writers who are asking me, like, what pilot should I watch? They should always, always, always watch the pilot of Hill Street Blues, which is the greatest show in the history of television. I will fight anyone who tries to say otherwise. Um, because every show that came after it that people want to say is the greatest show in the history of television only exists because Stephen Bochco was able to pull that pilot off. Because it, it's, you know, it changed the game in terms of how television was made. Um, Wise Guy is one of the most amazing TV pilots. I always recommend it to people. Um, the Miami Vice pilot. Crazy. Like, you probably could not get away with the Miami Vice pilot now because the two main characters don't meet each other for an hour. But it's still worth looking at because the character work is so really, really, like, interesting and you know so much about those people by the end of that pilot. It's kind of like, wow, okay. Um, Homicide Life on the Street, one of the greatest pilots ever. The character introduction of Frank Pembleton is one of the greatest character introductions I've ever seen. Like, you know everything you will ever need to know about Frank Pembleton from his search for his car. Everything you will ever need to know. So watching those really great, shows even if they're 10 20 30 years old the work in them doesn't age out maybe the pacing ages out maybe you know because hill street blues was what 52 minutes and and episodes and now it's you know 43 minutes so they're longer they can linger more in some of the you know silences of the characters and things the driving scene like people really literally driving down roads and you're like no, no nobody has time for that anymore but the character work, the dialogue work, the ideas in the shows, the way they execute things, that never ages out. Great pilots never age out in that way. What about watching bad pilots as another way to teach yourself? Bad pilots is also good. I mean, bad pilots is subjective, I think even more so than great pilots, because I think, right, you could Google like, Alan Steppenwall telling you what he thought the 10 greatest pilots were. He probably differs from me, but like that's going to be a solid list of pilots, right? Bad pilots, it kind of is about what was bad about it, right? So I think that's an interesting study. Like if you asked your 10 of your friends, what was the worst TV pilot you ever watched? And then go watch them. You could still learn like, I think one of the biggest mistakes that pilots make is, especially nowadays, the studios and the networks are like, more twists, more twists, more twists. And you're just exhausted by the end of the pilot. You're like, I, like, I was done three, three twists ago. I, that was enough. I didn't need the other things. They're like, give me those later. So it's too much happening in the pilot, right? And that's a battle right now because that's what they're asking us to do. But it's too much. Sometimes just too much. And you need to say it's too much. It's overwhelming story. Nobody's going to want to come back. Um, sometimes it's about the focus being off, like that whoever your lead character is, maybe it's casting, maybe it's writing, who knows, is, is losing focus to another character. And so it feels a little all over the place. And it's like, well, why didn't they fix that? Why didn't they realize it? Right. There's a lot of things that can go wrong in a pilot. Um, sometimes it's just the directing's bad. 
and you're like, wow, this was a really good script. It's like too bad they didn't have a better director because it just, it feels flat and like not good. And you know, they spent a ton of money on it, but it doesn't feel like it. You don't see it on screen. So it's, a, it's an interesting exercise to sort of just make yourself think about like, what would I have done different if it was my show? What questions does a writer need to be asking themselves while they're writing a pilot? I'd say first and foremost, always be clear on why you're writing it. What about it is interesting to you? What message are you trying to convey? Why? Why does it need to exist? Because I guarantee you, if it's not a thing you've already sold, when you go out to have conversations about it, people are going to be like, so why, why did you write this pilot? You're going to get it. So know why you're doing it. Because it'll also keep you really focused in the writing process. Um, I, I was working on a pilot once and I had written the outline and I had outlined two pilots at the same time and chose to write another one first. So I came back to this one and was like, great, now I'm going to write this. And as I was writing it, I just had this overwhelming sense of like, oh, no, something's wrong, something's wrong. And what I realized is having done so many cop shows, usually the secondary characters you want to write for them in the writer's room and the studio and the network are like, nobody cares, nobody cares. Too many, like we're focused on this. And so I had all these secondary characters in my world and I took them all out because I was like, maybe later these characters could exist, but in this pilot, nobody cares. And so I had to then go back and weave in really important story points that those characters had once carried because that information was still important to my story, but the characters weren't. So it was like, right, you're pulling focus away from this really important story that you're trying to tell about a woman whose personal and professional life has been upended by having these other people in the mix. So because I knew she was the most important thing to me in the story, I was able to be like, something's wrong, something's wrong, what is it? And then I finally figured it out. So you were having too much of these ancillary characters steal sort of screen time? Yes. Oh, interesting. Yeah, still screen time. And, and more so than screen time, it's trying to steal importance, right? Because in a pilot, you want every character to pop a little bit or it's why are they in there, right? So suddenly you're trying to create moments for all these sort of second tier characters. But I want all the moments to be with like the four people I'm most invested in who are all tied to my main character. So I was like, we don't really need all these. I will wipe the decks clear <laughs> and then get all those moments of, you know, and that script has gotten me so many meetings and, and, you know, so much development opportunity because I did that because I narrowed the focus. So why you're writing it's really important. I think who your audience is, if you're writing a pilot that feels very broadcast to you, let it be broadcast. Don't try to make it, you know, well, maybe it's also a cable pilot though. No, sometimes it's fine for a pilot to just feel like a broadcast pilot. And sometimes you're gonna write something that's like grittier and a little more cutting edge and it's very clearly a streaming pilot and that's fine, write it that way. It's a little, it's hard when you write things that are right down the middle because then everyone's a little confused by where it goes. Like, what, what's your target for this? Who are you thinking of? So if you think ahead of time, like I have a pilot that I wrote that is very specifically, I wrote it as an FX pilot because I wanted to show that I could do that like 
premium cable sort of feel, right? Even though FX is regular cable, it's pretty premium fare on that channel. So I was like, I'm going to do that. If one pilot that's very specifically an HBO pilot, because I was like, okay, I can do this. It's not necessarily how I want most of my shows to be, but I can do this. And this show fits the mold. So I'm going to write it. And then I have shows that are straight broadcast or more like Disney plusy kind of genre sort of stuff. It's just sort of know in your head, like, cause again, it's a question you're going to get asked, right? If you write that pilot and an exec's interested in it or a producer's interested in it, they're going to say, so where'd you see this? So no, know where you see it as you're writing it. And when, if we use that example of the a woman whose professional and personal life are sort of upended, when they asked you, why did you write this? What was your, what was my answer? It was, uh, it was at a time when several stories in the media and on television, quite frankly, had coalesced for me in this idea of women who had done hard things in their lives being expected to be ashamed of it. Women who maybe had done sex work or done whatever, needing to feel shame. And I rejected that. I was like, no, like these women survived. They did what they had to do to stay alive and they are survivors and they have built wonderful lives for themselves. And why should they have to feel guilty about this thing that they did? And so everything about her story is a rebuttal of that idea. It is about a woman who made some really, really difficult choices when she was young and owns them. And it's not like she's proud of them and wants to flaunt them all the time but she refuses to feel shame about them. How much of the world needs to be created in the pilot? You know, that's an interesting question. I would say, again, it sort of depends on the show, right? If you are writing a genre or a fantasy show, I think you need to have a sense of what rules need to absolutely be clear in the pilot, especially if it involves magic or it involves superpowers or anything like that. Um, executives tend to get a little mystified by that stuff. So clear rules are very helpful to them. Even if you know that you're going to build off on that and expand on that as you continue the writing process, if it becomes a show, what's absolutely essential in the pilot that your audience knows. And so that's part of your world building, right? Is like, okay, in this, if you're writing a fantasy show, let's say that in this uh, kingdom, there's this kind of magic. And in this kingdom, there's this kind of magic. And here's what happens when that kind of magic, you know, bumps up against each other. That might be all we need to know in the pilot, but make sure that the rules of all that are very clear. If you're writing more of a sort of, let's say like a Grey's Anatomy kind of show, it's you really want the characters to pop. You want to be sure that each character is incredibly distinct and that we understand what's most important to you about those characters from the pilot. Now you're also creating a scenario that's going to tell us how the show works. So for instance, using Grays as an example, interns in a, in a residency program, all the stuff getting thrown at them, and then also commiserating with each other and building a relationship with each other to get through it. Easy to understand. That's what the show is, but that's all set up in the pilot. So, a lot of times what you'll hear is, you know, what's the engine? And it really is about what is helping the audience understand what to expect every week. So if it's a cop show, we understand that we get a case every week. Or if it's like 
say Bosch on Amazon, we maybe have multiple cases that we're gonna follow through the season. And every week we're gonna get more pieces of the puzzle. And we're also gonna get all this personal stuff going on. But you establish that in your pilot. Like this is kind of how the show works. So to me, that's the most important stuff. And you can always add more to the world later. A lot of times what'll happen is exactly as I, you know, I was telling you in that other pilot, I had to clear some characters out. Sometimes you're like, I really want to introduce this character in the pilot because you know they're going to be in the entire show. But there's just, it just is taking up room in that pilot in a way that's just a disservice to the story. And so you have to be brave enough to pull it out and hold it for later in the series because what's most important is that what the show is is incredibly clear by the time someone finishes reading that pilot. They understand the show that you're trying to make. They definitely should have questions about like, well, like, is this thing going to pay off? And is this character going to come back? And, you know, they'll have all kinds of questions because you want open-ended things. You want there to be mysteries and, and wondering about how the characters are going to interact with each other. But how the show will work every single episode is what you're really trying to get across on top of your cool characters and your awesome world and all that stuff. You're painting that picture for them. How does a writer end a pilot? So one of the first things that I got taught when I started writing pilots is certainly in a, in a I'm trying to break into the business, I'm writing writing samples part of the pilot writing process. You, you do not hold anything back story-wise in the pilot. So if you're like, all this stuff's gonna happen in the pilot and then we're gonna open episode two with like, a, the chase and a crash and this character's gonna die, I'm gonna tell you that's the end of your pilot, right? Because you wanna go big emotionally or action-wise or something, you want it to be like, bam, at the end of your pilot. So I wrote one, I wrote a pilot where it's about this political family and um, it's, it, it a hundred percent when you read it, you're like, oh, this guy's going to die. He's going to die. He's totally going to die. And then he doesn't die. Someone else dies at the end of act five. And everybody's so mad at me. <laughs> so mad at me when they read it. But then act six is telling you exactly where we're going. It's like how this, what, where the family members are left now, now that this, the anchor has fallen away and what's going to happen. And it goes out on this sense of like, oh my God, how are they gonna survive this? Because you're like, how are they gonna survive it? That's what you want someone to say to you right at the end of that pilot. If you're doing a mystery pilot, you know, you can, um, you can do that thing where we think we're at the end of the episode. It feels like we've had like this really exciting, fulfilling hour and then like the screen goes black and then you write, you know, but then a door opens and a figure walks through and we know everything's about to change out. It's like that kind of stuff that like really makes them want to know what happens in the next episode. So it can be very, it can be description. It can be a line of dialogue. It's whatever it is to you that says, got to come back next week. And, and that's really, really true when you're starting to write them. People want to hold things back because they're like, but then later, but then later. Well, right now there's no later. There's only this. If you sell this pilot, 
you can say, hey, I'd really love to pull this out and hold it for later. But right now, you just want them to be blown away by your writing. So I've heard writers say this. It has not really been my experience, but it does happen to a lot of writers that oftentimes how you think your pilot ends is really how your pilot begins. Not a stand, not a rule, but sometimes if people are telling you it just moves too slow or it just doesn't feel like it has enough momentum, that's a thing to try is pull the ending up and then write from that and see what happens. And that's not like bookending it where you no. have, okay, that's different. Not bookending it. That's literally like that cool, amazing moment that you think is the end of the pilot might actually be where we need to start. And then what's in your head is episode two is really the pilot, right? So you're, you're using the end of the pilot that you thought you needed and then kind of writing episode two which sometimes really works. Sometimes it's like, oh, right, because you were saving all that cool stuff <laughs> and you didn't realize it. And now all the cool stuff from episode two is in your pilot. Are there any other tips you have for writing a pilot? Um, Maybe we didn't cover? You know, I would say this, if especially if you're new to television, um, learning to outline is a really important skill. And so if you have not habitually been a writer who outlines their material, start with the pilots that you're writing at home. And um, sometimes you can find those examples, again, like at the Writers Guild Library or places like that. Um, I, in my book, The Writer's Room Survival Guide, have a couple of examples of what an outline can look like to just help people start to figure out, you know, what it, what is that? What is this outline thing I have to do? Because the more you practice it at home, the less intimidating it's going to be when a showrunner's like, great, can you write me a 12-page outline by the end of the week? Like, you're going to be like, sure I can, because you've done it at home, right? So it'll be, it won't be like a new thing that's getting dropped on you. And it also just is a good guide map. Once you have that outline, writing your pilot's going to be so much easier because as you're loading in, like, you know, you're like, okay, and then like, now this is the next scene in the outline. Sometimes you can already be like, oh, wait, I feel like it took us too long to get here. Let me go back really quickly and change this. Or, oh, no, actually, I think this goes later. I'm going to hold this scene and do it later. As opposed to you being on the fly, trying to make it all up as you're going along. So it's a really good skill to have. It's very necessary in television writing. So I would start practicing it now at home. And, um, and whatever your thing is that you love while you write, I happen to write to television because I'm a classic latchkey kid who did her homework with the TV on. Um, but music, quiet, whatever it is, embrace it, love it. Just know that when you become a TV writer, if you have a boss who says, please work in the office, you're going to have to find a way to make that work for you. For me, I was lucky because I came along when streaming existed. So I could still put TV on and just put my headphones in and have Friday Night Lights playing in the background while I wrote. <laughs> so, um, but you know, whatever, how, however your writing jam, you know, works for you, you will have to create a version of that that works in an office where people can walk in your door and interrupt you and do all those things. So just remember that, that it's, it's very different once you become a working TV writer. Is there a standard structure for television? Yeah. And, and it can vary, especially depending on what your, what outlet you're writing for. So 
when you're staffed, right, you're writing to whatever the network or the streaming service does. There's, there's a variety of different structures that that brings about. For instance, most of the ABC dramas that I know of, I will not say all about any of them, are written in six-act structure. So what six-act structure means is that you're, you're basically, everything's kind of a little symmetrical, right? You've got this many pages here, this many pages in each act, you're building to those act outs or those commercial breaks. And because it's so act out driven, it really changes the pacing of the show. If you watch, most ABC shows will feel like they move very quickly. And it's because of that sort of symmetrical nature of the acts. Shows on CBS are often teaser four is a structure. It's also often called five act structure. It sort of just depends on who's referring to it. But what it does is allow you to write a longer teaser that can sometimes be more luxurious and get more of your story set up. And then you, you use the following four acts to, you know, complete your storytelling. Shows that I, I will say I think have done that are like The Good Wife, right? Would sometimes have those really long opening setups before the title card. So that's your long, luxurious teaser. And then the rest of the show is the five-act structure. Um, so those that's sort of the main stuff. Six-act, teaser four, or five-act. Five-act tends to... Um, have a shorter teaser that then the basically starts act one. So it's like short teaser, title card, rest of act one, as opposed to being a separate entity like teaser four is. Um, so those are the varying sort of different things. And you can, you know, again, if you can get a hold of scripts for different shows, you can research how they did it. In streaming shows, when you read our scripts, there, there won't be any act designations because there are typically no commercial breaks. Although now that, you know, Netflix is going to have an ad tier, I don't know if that's going to change or they're going to ask us to tell them where the commercial breaks are like we do in broadcast TBD. But um, again, to something I spoke about earlier and that I think is really important, breaking the story as if those act breaks exist will help with your storytelling and help with the emotional ebb and flow of the episode so that it doesn't feel like you're waiting till the end of the show to do all the really important things. Because I think what happens is people are like, well, we can have all these nice long conversations or we can have this great big huge set piece, but then you're not really getting a lot of variation in the episode. It's just sort of like talk, 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 talk. Everything happens or it's like, Talking, talking, huge set piece. Talking, 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 boom, ending. And that's like a, it's not really a great pleasurable experience when you watch TV. You want to sort of like be drawn in and then like, okay, I can rest a little bit. Um, so that, that act break structure, even if you take act breaks out of your script, is a really good way to do it. How is the structure of a Netflix 60-minute show different from a 60-minute cable TV show? The biggest difference is if you're referring to cable as in like freeform, FX, those kind of things are that those platforms still include commercial breaks. So you are still writing to an act out. And what that really means for the writer is that you are creating a moment that you hope assures that your audience will come back after the commercial break. Now, obviously, some, those shows will move to a streaming platform. There will not be commercials in them. 
So you that gets eliminated at that point. But when they're airing on their actual originating broadcasters, that's the whole goal. That's what an act out is all about is, holy crap, what just happened? And you're like, come on commercials, come on commercials, go, 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 go. Or you recorded it so you can fast forward through all the commercials and then your show is back. Um, so, you know, for a streaming show for say Netflix or for, you know, Amazon or for, free, well, Freebie has ads, but for Amazon Prime itself, those are not, they're not worried about your act breaks. So you can, you lose page count in your script to act breaks when you're doing them for say a broadcast show. Like when you have four lines at the top of a page and then it's like end of act, you're done with that page. Like all that blank space is, <laughs> is lost to you. If you're doing a streaming show and you're breaking it with act breaks, but you're not putting them in the script, it's just one long continuous thing. So you've probably bought yourself back four pages of script just by not having act breaks. So it'll allow you to expand a little bit sometimes when you need to. Um, the trick with the 60 minute show, I have yet to write on a Netflix show and I have written on three of them now where 60 minute episodes were actually what we were delivering. We've mostly still delivered like 52-ish, 52 to 55 minutes. So in general, I know they have shows that will have longer episodes, but in general, that's still the target. So you're still looking at, you know, turning in a 52 to 55 page script in the hopes of not, you don't ever want to run short, but you also don't want to be 10 minutes over because now you're going to have to kill a lot of scenes that you love in order to get it down. <laughs> so trying to find that sweet spot of being like four or five minutes over so you can cut a few things, but you know, still have some choices and some, some good moments around is kind of the goal. Can you explain A, B, and C stories? Sure. So in most shows, you will have your A story is the main story of the episode. It is the driving story usually of your main characters. Uh, not always true, but often true. And so say for instance, and I'll use SWAT as an example, because we very clearly wrote A, B, and C stories. So your A story is the crime of the week, right? What are, who are the bad guys we're challenging? What have they done? What are we trying to stop them from doing? And you will develop that whole story. And who in our cast is that story really affecting right now? Eight out of 10 episodes, that's going to be Hondo. But sometimes it's a personal case from the past for one of our other characters, or it's someone's friend who was injured in the crime. And so they're the ones who are emotionally affected by what we're doing. So that's your A story. Your B story and your C story are the supporting stories in the episode, and they are usually more character focused. So it's a chance for your second tier characters to sort of get moments, right? So say, again, in an episode of SWAT, a B story might be um, Street and Chris have like admitted that they like each other, but they're still like, oh, can we date? No, we can't date. What are we going to do about this mess? So that romantic intrigue is your B story. Sometimes it also will cross into your A story, right? Because it's like they're on a call together and they've just had this fight about the fact that they can't date each other, but then like something dangerous happens and then it's so clear how much they love each other, right? So it's like you're building that stuff into the A story, but you're breaking their arc on its own. 
And then a C story is usually a runner, right? It's like a three, four beat story that sometimes adds some humor to the episode. Sometimes it's to tie off a loose end that we've left floating from a prior episode of like, did that couple break up? We don't know. And so we'll do like three beats where we finally reveal, like, did the couple break up? Oh, no, no, they're still together. Look at that surprise, like whatever it is. Um, sometimes it's a way to give an actor who has maybe not been as focused on in the show a chance to shine. So you're giving them three or four scenes that are really about them and their character and letting them sort of like, you know, hey, I'm here, pay attention to me. So that's really what those things break down to. It's your main story, your secondary story, and then C story is usually a runner. Um, you will sometimes, like in a finale episode, your B and C stories will feel about equal because, you know, finales are all about wrapping up the emotional arcs of the entire season. So sometimes it's like you've got three relationship st stories going and you have to get somewhere with all of them. So you'll, you know, you suss that out in the moment, but that's in general how that works. What do writers get wrong about TV structure? I think the imbalance can happen a lot. The everything happens in the beginning or the end and not enough attention to holding the story in the middle, right? You, you can start with a big bang, but you have to keep building investment through the episode or else people won't be around to see your big finish. So it's just that reminder of like the story has to keep building on itself. And sometimes you see people like just sort of think this story can coast and it, it can't, like you need to keep building the investment of your audience of like, oh my God, she overheard that. Is she gonna tell them she overheard it? You're waiting to find out, like, is she gonna tell them? And then maybe you don't even get an answer to that episode, but like I'm leaning forward now because I'm like, she overheard the thing though, she overheard the thing. So it's just that, it's, I think that's the biggest mistake is not realizing that you can have a big beginning and a big finish, but if the stuff in between isn't piquing the interest of your audience, they're gonna tune out. And that's the worst thing that can happen to you because they may not make it to your big finish. And so you can't count on that to be why someone's gonna keep watching the show. What does it mean to break a story? So breaking a story is how you figure out what all the actual scenes are in an episode, whether it's your own pilot you're writing at home or whether it's an episode of a show that you're working on. And there are different methodologies about how to do it. I can tell you my favorite methodology of doing it, which is I, and this is a combination of ways I've seen it done in multiple rooms that like now this is the system that I like. So first of all, I think it's just a question of what did we think our main characters would be doing in this episode, right? And if you're doing a pilot, it's like, what is the story I wanna tell about my main characters? And you can, on note cards or on a whiteboard, as simply as, you know, I need Nicole to figure this out. I need, um, you know, Adam to go here. I need, um, you know, we need conflict between the mother and daughter to get us to the place we need to be in the next episode. Big ideas like that. They don't have to be super specific. It's just like, you know, here are things we think our characters need to do. And especially if you're working on staff, right? And you're in a writer's room. The next part of that is, do we owe anything from the last episode? Was there stuff that we thought we were gonna include in that script that we didn't? 
Do we still need it? Does it go here? So you have that conversation. And then you look at the episode coming up and like, have we set up everything we need to for that? Or do we owe something in this episode to make sure that we get to episode six, you know, clean and nobody's like, what, where'd that come from? So to me, those are all the starting conversations. And once you do that, you kind of have a loose shape of the episode, right? You, you have, say, five things you know that your leading man has to, to deal with, like five scenes with your leading man, three scenes that are about his relationship with his leading lady, maybe two scenes of the leading lady's story on her own. And then, oh, we have to set up this plot point that's going to pay off in episode six. Oh, we want to do a B story about this set of secondary characters. And you're just talking it through. What is it? Once you have that, you can start to really talk about what's happening in those actual scenes. So it's like, okay, in the scene where Nicole's going to get the document and she's going to be super pissed off about it. Like, what is she doing? Where do we find her? You know, is she in her morning routine? Is she on the phone? Like you're really talking that through because if she's on the phone, maybe she's saying something that's going to set up one of those B stories we need later, right? You can see if you can make connective tissue between that scene and the scene that needs to happen later. And then what does that paperwork mean? Why is she so angry about it? Is she screaming at someone? Is she throwing a fit in the room by herself? Like, what is it? So you really sort of nail down what's happening in that scene. And you do that for every one of those moments that you've already talked about. And then once you have them all fleshed out and how many scenes are in an episode will vary between what show you're on. I would say it has been my experience that if you have more than 35 scenes, your script's probably going to be too long because you want to be able to write, you know, the description that the art department needs to figure out what they're decorating. And you need to, you know, if there's a specific costume thing, you need costumes to do, you got to describe it and that kind of stuff. So you need some room to play um, with those descriptions or with a long exchange of dialogue. And so say now you have your 35 scenes. Well, now you got to figure out what order they go. in. <laughs> so that's the next stage of the break is to say, okay, well, I think that one we have here is the perfect act out for act two. So you move it to the bottom of act two. And then it's like, okay, well, we know this is the end of the episode. So we're going to move this here. And we know this is the first scene that we want to do. And you just literally start moving the cards or writing on the board to put the things in order. And then you end up with an episode of television. And then that doesn't necessarily mean your work is done, right? Especially if you're staffed, you're going to pitch stuff along the way. Like the day you do that big overview conversation, your showrunner comes in if they were off doing other things and you put, the room will pitch him the stuff on the board or her. And they'll be like, oh, I love all that. I'm not so sure about this. Maybe come up with some alts for that. So you keep, you know, doing the work in each process until you get to that we have 35 scenes in order that feels like an episode. And then the writer of the episode or the number two in the room will pitch through the whole episode for the showrunner. And the showrunner will sometimes just love it and like, great, go write an outline. And sometimes the showrunner's making adjustments as you're pitching and being like, no, 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 I love that. Can you do me a favor though and make sure um, we don't do X because actor A has a problem with that. So just find an alt for that end of the, the scene. Great. Make yourself a note, keep pitching. And you'll take all that information with you 
and then go write the outline. So it's really the building blocks. Breaking a story is coming up with the building blocks of the episode. When you're breaking a TV show story, what are the first few things you're trying to figure out? If it's, if it's for a thing that you're writing yourself, right? I mean, you have the idea of what you think the show is. So where it starts, I think, is always like an important thing to nail down. Where, what moment is the first moment of this show for you? Um, what is the way you want to introduce your main character or characters? What's the, the way that you want the audience to interpret them based on their movement, where they live, where, how they dress, whatever the key elements are to you. So I think figuring those things out right away is really important. And I, I would say in pilot writing, if you, I always know how my pilot ends in terms of the broad sense of, I know the ending is going to be that we're going to realize that character A is actually the one who committed the murder and nobody else knows it, right? That's going to be the reveal at the end of the pilot. So everything I'm writing is writing towards that. And that'll help you sort of know like, oh, I don't have enough twists or turns or that kind of thing. So I feel like knowing how you start, knowing how you want to introduce your characters and knowing where the pilot is ending to me are the most important things when you're trying to then go break the story. Um, when you're breaking it in a room with other writers, I think, you know, having tent poles of the episode are what, what we refer to it as of like, you know, you can not necessarily know how the episode's supposed to end other than I know we're supposed to get to the point where he admits he loves her at the end of the episode. I'm not quite sure how to get there, but I know that's how we're ending. And I, I know at the midpoint, we need to have something go wrong where everybody's at each other's throats and they're going to have to recover from that for the rest of the episode. And then my idea for how to start the episode is X. And then your team can help you fill in all the other stuff in between. That's the joy of having a writer's room is you don't need to have all the answers like you do when you're writing your pilot. You can say, here's what I have. And then everybody else joins together to help you fill in the parts that you don't have. And you don't have to take every idea that comes unless it's from your showrunner. And then you kind of do. But if someone pitches something that you don't love, it's okay to be like, can we try and beat that? Like, I'm not sure I like, I really want to go down that road. And if your showrunner likes it and may make you do it, but it's fine to be like, can we come up with some alts for that? And then you pitch the version you like best to your showrunner. And sometimes they're like, oh, I love that. And that conversation's over. And sometimes they're like, I'm not sure about that act out for act three though. And then you can be like, well, we had some other ideas in the room and you can pitch the thing you didn't love, but that someone in the room pitched and maybe the showrunner's gonna be like, yes, do that. Okay, because it's not your show, so you do it. When it's your pilot, you get to make all the choices until you're doing it for a studio or a network. And then they can say to you, I don't like the act out for act three. <laughs> Or I don't do notes. Yes. <laughs> but that sounds like that's what the beauty of the of the cards is or doing it with a board is that it's movable parts. Yes. And so you can show them. If you say, okay, we can try it, even though maybe in your mind you're like, this is never going to work. But we'll, we'll go with it. We'll try it. So you move it here and then you show, okay, if I move that, then I have to move this here. And then it's kind of there for you to see. Yes. And that's the best part of it is like you try it. And then everyone can see like, oh, wait, that means that like now all the actions shifted to the middle of the episode and we don't have anything up here. So how do we fix that? 
and it's maybe it's moving back the thing that you just moved and we find a different solution for here. So it, it allows you to see it and then have the conversation. And I think, you know, the story that I love about why I'm still a note card girl, like I have um, boards like in my house that I just pull out and like stick note cards to them. And I have one up on the wall. And um, part of the reason that I am a note card girl is because of the legendary story of um, Stephen Bochco and the Hill Street Blues pilot, which when they first screened it was kind of a disaster. And he was like, give me a chance to fix it. And he went back to his office and he laid the entire episode in note cards out on the floor. And he reassembled the pilot, moving the cards around and pulling cards out. And then that became the pilot that changed television. So being able to put all the cards out and be like, okay, there's just too much in act two. That's the problem. Because now that all the cards are lined up, I can just tell act two is too long. So what do I do? Or, you know, just saying like, nope, I need this to happen sooner and moving the physical card. Now on a board, you can do that because you're crossing stuff out or, you know, whatever. <laughs> but it's to me, it's easier with cards. There's also now the electronic software that we've all had to use during Zoom rooms like Writer's Room Pro or Miro and, you know, for people who prefer to do it that way. And I think Final Draft even has a board function now. And so even for yourself, you can use those programs if you want to, because you don't want to actually write on physical note cards or you don't have room to have a whiteboard. You can use those programs to do the same thing. Just as a side note, do you know, did they have to shoot new scenes for Hill Street Blues or did they just do it in post? I believe it was just a recut. I feel like uh, I read Bochco's book and I feel like it was just a recut. I could be wrong because I haven't read the book since 2016. Um, but yeah, it was just a, like, it's too long. It's kind of all over the place. And so they went in and they, they reassembled it. They reimagined it with those cards. How much time is a writer's room given to break a story? Um, very determined by the showrunner and their process. But I would say in general, it's about a week per episode. Um, sometimes longer, especially if it's a really serialized show and it's a streaming show where you're writing everything before it shoots. The 20 weeks of the writer's room can sort of, if you have 20 weeks, can sort of stretch each episode break a little further because you have more time. In broadcast television, once the train of the season starts running, you have to keep running too, or else it will run you over. So a week is about as long as I think I've ever had, and a week, like meaning seven days. Um, shorter if, if you can is always preferred. Um, but yeah, it's no one wants to rush an episode off the board because if you do, you always end up putting it back on the board when you go write the outline and stuff doesn't work. And then, you know, it's like, okay. And you put the cards back up and you're like, let's fix it. <laughs> so it's better to take the time to fix it while it's there. Um, another thing that can happen in a break is that people, different, different people prefer different things as writers when you're breaking your episode that you're going to write. Um, I think it's always great to have a conversation in the room about like, how do we get into the scene? How do we get out? Um, because that's helpful, right? It, it sort of shorthands for you about like, you know, I just need to come into the scene while they're already sitting at the table arguing. I don't need the build up and whatever. But 
there's a lot of things that I'm like, you guys, I can figure that out. I don't need to talk about it. Like, I I will figure out how we get out of the scene. Like, I just don't need to have a conversation about it. Some writers really need to have that conversation. And so you need to say like, hey, it would be really helpful for me if we talked about how we're getting in and out of every scene. I tend to be like, I just need to know what's happening in the scene. I don't need the the how we get in, how we get out. I'm going to figure that out on the page. Let's just make sure we have every moment that we need in the scene written on this card so that I know what it, what all has to happen. So it's a little bit different depending on your writing style, I think. And does each writer get its own episode, their own episode, or each episode is a collective process? Very show dependent. Um, my experience has been that um, every writer either gets a solo episode or co-writes episodes um, throughout the season. So most standard is each solo writer gets at least one episode that they write themselves. Writing teams will write an episode together. And then sometimes like in order for a staff writer to get more experience, they'll pair the staff writer with a co-EP to write. So they get to write another half a script so that they get more of a chance to write. Or in a room that has the episodes to do it, you really want your writer writer's assistant to get a chance to write. So you'll pair your writer's assistant with a more experienced writer so they get a chance. So oftentimes that'll turn into like one, one and a half scripts per writer, per team, depending on how it works out. Um, there are circumstances in which staff writers do not get to write a script because the room is super top heavy and there's only a limited number. Say there's eight writers in the room and there's eight episodes of television. Well, at least the first one's already written probably because your showrunner's already written the pilot. Your showrunner's probably writing the finale. So now there's six episodes left and there's eight writers. So unless they pair you up with someone, you may not get a script, um, but it's still a great experience and you'll still get to learn lots of things. And what most showrunners will try to do in that case is like give the, sh the staff writer a chance to write the story documents or to help with the outlines or do things that like give them experience, even though they're not writing a script. I should give you a little more on that probably too. Um, there is, there are shows that do all group writing. It is my least preferred method of writing a show. Um, but there are showrunners who swear by it. And if it works for them, it's their right to do it. But that is where literally like you do that whole breaking process. You have all your scenes and it gets divvied up amongst the entire staff. And so people write scenes and then it all gets assembled. And, you know, the showrunner does passes on it, whatever. Once there's a completed episode, someone on the staff will be credited with having written it um, if it remains a completely group endeavor. There are some shows where we group write the first draft and then I as the writer of that episode will take it and do a pass to try to make it all cohesive and then I will be in control of the script with the showrunner for the rest of the run. And then it is, you know, so to allow the writer to take more ownership over it. Um, I, I believe group writing is good in emergencies, like when your lead actor suddenly has to disappear for three days. Um, but I am not about it as a general rule, but plenty of people do it. Is there a danger though, in that there are going to be different voices and styles that are going to be very noticeable 
it's, it's oh, individual. 100%. 100%, which is why someone, even if it's the showrunner, is going to have to take that uh, Frankenstein draft, is what we call them, and go make a cohesive feeling episode. Like, it's never going to be right when you first assemble all the pieces. Like, it's just not. Everybody has a different take on slightly different way that they like to write this character versus that character this writer does. And so you, as a showrunner, will have to go in and or assign a writer to do it, but you, someone has to make it cohesive so that it feels like one writer wrote it. Sure, and then if it's different um, episodes, that there's also the danger in that each one's going to sound or have a different style and tempo. Yeah, I mean, that is a danger. The real truth of the matter is the showrunner is, should, I, I believe, I will say should, be taking the final pass on every script because at the end of the day, it is the showrunner's job to make sure every episode feels like it belongs together. So, you know, you may have a really talented writer who doesn't quite get the voice of the show right. Part of your job as the showrunner is to take that script and adjust it so that the voice feels right and send it on through and not put your name on it because this is your job and allow that writer to take full credit for the episode. Because they've done their work, your job as the showrunner is to take it to the final level. Does everyone in the room obsess over the season finale on the first day? No. No. I think it's pretty rare because sometimes, I mean, I have literally been in situations where on the first day, we don't even know what the season's about. So <laughs> all you're hoping for in that case is that someone figures it out because, you know, to me, really good showrunners are prepared and they come in and they're like, okay, here's the, the big idea of the season is X. And then we can all start riffing on that. But sometimes you're in a room where someone literally says to you, what is the season about? And you're like, I thought that was your job. And so now you all start riffing, trying to come up with something that the showrunner latches on to. And then it's like, okay, that, let's talk more about that. And then you can start building it. So Really, the you know, once you start talking about what those tent poles are and your showrunner starts saying like, ooh, and then maybe this would be cool at the end of the season and this would be cool. Like you're, you're building a list of what might be in the finale, but until you really start getting ready to pitch the season to the studio and the network, you're more concerned on just making sure you actually have six, eight, 13, uh, you know, 22 episodes like that you know that you're going to have those episodes because you can you know Netflix oftentimes will ask you to pitch a whole season in three two to three weeks so you're just in there basically and and by pitch a season I mean have big ideas for what the season is so you're just in there like okay what if we did an episode about this and it's like yes write it on the board like you're just trying to come up with ideas and half of it will go away by the time you actually get to the end of the season because you're, you come up with better ideas once you have more time. So yeah, I, I, I don't think I've ever experienced a show where someone was like, this is how the season ends on the first day. And we were all like, so just like into that. It was more like, okay, how are we gonna get there? <laughs> how do you know you have enough story for the entire season? Um. I would say one of the bigger problems, honestly, is that you usually have more story than you have room for. Like, especially in streaming where you're only getting eight, six to eight, ten episodes. Um, 
you will find that there's stuff that you really want to do that you just can't get to. Because, you know, to some of the points that we've talked about, that main character or main character relationship is going to always need attention. And if you really need a B story to pay off in the finale, that B story has to keep getting serviced. And so you're going to have great ideas for things that you want to do. And they're going to stay on a board for maybe next season because it's just you end up having more ideas than you have space for. Now, if you're doing a season of, say, SWAT, where you've got 22 episodes, it's it's part of the reason that you have a room the size that you have for that, right, where you have 10 to 12 bodies to just constantly be coming in being like, what if we did an episode about this? What if we did an episode about that? Because then you're worried you won't have enough um, crimes, right? You can make the character stories work, but it's like, I, you need 22 crimes. What are the 22 crimes going to be? So it's that brainstorming session of like, you know, maybe this and maybe this and maybe this. And then you put some down and some of them go away and some of them become stories, you know, and you're always looking when you work on that type of show, you're always reading newspapers and looking at TV shows and doing stuff, trying to be like, Oh, what if we did this case? And you just kind of keep a running list because you never know when like exactly the case that we were all so excited about. We're like, this one's going to be great. And then you try to break it and you're like, oh, this isn't an episode. What are we going to do? And then you go to your list <laughs> and you're like, this one, let's do this one. How many storylines are in a typical season of a show? That's, I don't know that I can answer that because again, I think it varies so much depending on the type of show that you're doing. Um, you know, so I wrote on a show called Fate the Wink Saga. And so we had, you know, five girls who were the focus of our show. So each of them has to have some some sort of story that we're following, right? So you know each one of them has a storyline. And then there's a romantic storyline between our lead and the handsome boy at the school. And then there's a storyline about the secret that the teachers are keeping. And it starts to be a lot and it's sort of the trick is the management of how those you want those things to all eventually sort of cross over each other and touch each other and weave together the problem is when you suddenly find yourself with like 10 stories that are all sort of separate and and you're like I don't I don't know like we can't this character is not participating with any of the other characters how do we get her involved in these stories and then you have to like change the path of that character's arc because you you don't want them on an island all by themselves you want them in the main story somehow and part of that core group of characters so a lot of it is I really want to do this for this character and you'll love the story but you realize it's pulling them out of the main arc and so you have to find a way to pull them back or you have to choose different stories for them how do you structure the storylines into an episode that's what we call um, blending or weaving, or as one of my showrunners love to call it, the smush. And um, that is when you know you have all your storyline beats out, and now you have to put them in an order that actually works as an episode of television. And so that's that's a lot of that. You know, um, I think this is definitely how I want to end Act 3. I think this is a great way to kick off Act 5. I think, um, you know, we really want this relationship turmoil to start in Act 2 and then boil over in Act 4. So, like, 
you're just sort of trying to figure out the rhythm of the episode. And it's a lot of moving cards around or changing things on a whiteboard or moving your electronic cards, but you finally kind of get a feel for, okay, this, this works. This is an episode because you're looking out for all kinds of things, right? You want your main characters can't disappear for too long. So if you find that like they're at the top of act two and then we don't see our main characters again to like the middle of act three, that's a problem. So now you got to go rearrange some stuff. Um, you want to make sure that you're tracking the stories enough so that no one's like, they're just not going to talk about that thing anymore. So like even for your C story runner, that's only three beats. It's like, okay, if we launch it in act two, and then we need to touch it in like four and six to pay it off so that you're not just forgetting about it. So it's, it's a, that kind of balancing act. It's like you're trying to make sure that you're giving the audience a good flow of information through the episode. In the beginning of your writing career, how are you green on the business side of being a TV writer? Oh my God, I was so green about the whole thing. It's, you know, when you first break in, right, the Writers Guild, one of the main things that they do for us is the negotiate the um, MBA, which is our minimum basic agreement with the studios. So there's set amounts that studio, that staff writers will make. So it's written down, it's like they're in a piece of paper. So you don't have to, there's not a ton of negotiation when you're a staff writer. But as you go on, like all of this stuff gets very complicated and there's you know, issues of um, how long a studio can hold you and how much more they have to pay you to hold you. And it gets very complicated, which is why having a rep that you can communicate with is so important. Because I have literally just had to say to my agent, my manager sometimes like, what does this mean? <laughs> I don't understand this. What does this mean? And, you know, just in terms of how how your career is going to build. It's sort of like an idea in the beginning, but it really is sort of one job at a time, one project at a time, because I very much, my reps would tell you every time a project ends, I'm like, you're going to be able to find me another job, right? And they're like, girl, of course you're going to find another job, but I can't believe my own press. So I'm always like, mm, am I going to find another job though? <laughs> um, but it's, you know, paying attention to the business, paying attention to all this consolidation that's going on. Um, you know, are the people that you knew who worked at Netflix getting laid off or did they survive the layoffs? Because sometimes you're reaching out to the people you know to say like, hey, I have this project and I'm looking for someone who might be interested in it. Does it seem to you like one of your overall people might be interested in this or something, you know, to your friends? And if your friends are in these mass layoffs, now they're off looking for different work. Um, how systems change, you know, having worked at Marvel TV in its old incarnation, and then that whole thing going away. So everybody I knew who worked for Marvel didn't work for Marvel anymore, you know, in a matter of a year. So the whole Marvel TV landscape has changed. And so it's like, okay, who, who does work over there? Do I know anyone there? So you're you're constantly having to pay attention to the evolution of this business. There are people who choose not to. There are people who are like, that's just too much for me. I don't want to deal with it. I like to be informed about all those things. I think it's really important to me so that when my agent sends me something from a particular studio or a producing pod that I am like, 
oh, they're connected to this place I don't really love. Maybe I don't want to look at this or, oh, I love that place. So yes, let's definitely work there. Um, so it, I just think that you're always educating yourself, not just about your skill set that you need as a writer, but about how to be, you know, how to be a showrunner in the future, about how this business works, about what good representation looks like. You know, I constantly have younger writers saying to me, you know, like, oh, I'm having this problem with my agent, but I don't want to say anything. And I'm like, no, no, your agent works for you. They work for you. You want to have a good partnership with them, but they get paid because you get paid. So it's fine to go to them and say, hey, I'm a little concerned about X. Can we talk about it? And it's, it's fascinating how many younger writers are scared to have those conversations. So, you know, we're, we're all encouraging them to go do that. <laughs> but, you know, there's a lot. There's a lot about it I still don't know. You know, if you ask me to explain to you half the stuff in my feature contract, I would tell you I would need to talk to my feature agent again because she explained it all to me. And I remember half of it. But I, a whole bunch of it, I'm like, oh, I don't actually remember how that bonus gets triggered. I would have to ask my feature agent. So it's a lot. And it's really important to work with people that you feel like you can trust who are giving you the best advice. And a younger writer would be scared to ask or push the envelope because they feel like I'm finally in the door. I don't want to jeopardize it. That's it. Absolutely. Like sometimes it takes so long to get repped. It's so hard to get representation and they get scared of rocking the boat because they don't wanna be without a rep. Um, I had a conversation with a writer who gave me really wonderful advice and it was that it is honestly better to be unrepresented than to have the wrong rep because the wrong rep is holding you back. Like it sucks to not be represented because there's stuff it's harder to submit for. You have to try to like, can your lawyer submit you if you have a lawyer? It, it all gets very tricky, but if you have a rep who isn't doing the work, isn't sending you out on general meetings so that you can build a reputation amongst executives and amongst producers of someone they want to work with, they're not helping you build your career. And so it's fine to say, look, I totally get that you're super busy. Could you maybe put someone more junior on my team who can help me set up more general meetings? Because I really want to you know, get to co-EP in the next five years. And so I need to get out there and meet these people and be on that path. It's perfectly fine to say that because you can frame it in a way that's not, you're not doing your job. It's, I totally get that you have bigger clients than me. So would it be okay if we tried this? And if they say no, they're not the right rep for you. They're just not. Tips for the TV writer's room, like things that a new writer might not think of in terms of, Maybe where to sit. Um, what if they're fidgety? Yes. Yes. There, there are so many things that I feel like I talk about in the writer's room survival guide that will seem silly to people who have never worked in a writer's room, but they're so important. And so, for instance, um, the, you know, the first day you get there and it's sort of like, where does everybody sit? If it's a returning show, there are probably people who already have seats that they like. So kind of like hang back and see what's going on. Or you can say, does anybody sit here? And they'll tell you if someone does or not, right? Um, if it's if you're the kind of writer who is very fidgety and like you like to draw constantly or you're like a, a leg bouncer and you need to be bouncing your leg or 
you know, you're, you take pens apart. I've worked with writers who do that. Don't sit by your showrunner because your showrunner's attention is going to constantly be pulled to you and that might be a problem for you. So sit across the room. Just sit across the room and do your thing you got to do to feel comfortable, but it won't be right in your showrunner's face. If you are the kind of writer who has to go to the bathroom every hour, sit closer to the door so you can just get up and slip out and come back in and it won't be any big drama because no one wants to be the person who has to walk across the entire writer's room every hour. It's like, it's, you don't, nobody wants to do it. So just save yourself the problem. Um, you know, when it comes to lunch orders, this is a big one. So in, in a lot of rooms, the studio will provide lunch for the writers when you're meeting in person and there's limits to how much you can spend. And so the, there's usually like a, an assembly of menus of places that you can go to, right? If it's your day to pick and you don't want to pick, just pass it on. Just be like, I don't want to pick today. Someone else pick. If it's your day to pick and you know that the place you want to go is a place that everybody hates, please do not pick that place because <laughs> they're all going to be mad at you. Um, if you know, if you notice that your showrunner's a little grumpy today and you know what his favorite place is, pick his favorite place because it's like, he's going to be real happy when he's like, Oh, we're going there today. Great. And suddenly his mood gets better. Um, so it's just, it's a lot of silly kind of little things, but because it's a room full of personalities that have to find a way to coexist together, those things can be really important. So I, I, you know. Hopefully people will think about those things when they walk in there for the first time. Are writing credits your ticket to getting better and better work? They can be, for sure. Um, there, there are people in this business, and I will just say that, who are what we refer to as credit snobs, right? So, for example, when I was coming up and I had done four broadcast shows in a row, there was people at some of the streamers and stuff who were like, well, but she's only done broadcast. Well, then I went and did Cloak and Dagger and I wrote a movie and suddenly I was really cool, right? Because I had a cool credit and I had written a movie. And I'm like, it, what I did in those procedural rooms is harder than any of the stuff that you're like, ooh, she's so cool for. Because when you have to break a crime 16, 18, 22 times, with the same character solving it, but you have to find a way to make it cool and different every week. Trust me, that's harder than anything you're gonna ask me to write in any of your snobby rooms. So <laughs> um, that that is a thing. And I will certainly say that, you know, once I transition to more streaming content and that kind of stuff, the stuff that was offered to me definitely changed a little bit. Um, so, you know, the fancy credits can definitely help you get to that place you want to go. What I always tell newer writers is, you know, it used to be that you couldn't get jobs on the fancy shows, but now you can because there's so many shows, right? And they sometimes still hire staff writers. But think about your career long term. So it's great that you did a couple of streaming shows and you got fancy credits, but you probably didn't go to set. You probably don't barely saw any cuts of the show, or you definitely didn't get to go to post. So your career needs those skills. So that's why I tell them, like, if you did a couple of fancy shows, go do a season of broadcast. 
And first of all, you're going to make better money because you just make better money in broadcast. And second, you're going to get a chance to do all that stuff you didn't get to do. And people, you know, broadcast is its own animal and it's a different energy. And there's something really pleasing about breaking a story, writing a story, going to see it shot and it making it on the air in a reasonable amount of time. It's just really joyful for your friends to not constantly be like, when is your show coming out? And you're like, I don't know. <laughs> so, you know, the fancy credits will help you get some of the cooler jobs, but they will not necessarily build the skill set that you need to become a showrunner and run your own show. So I just tell people to always think about that when they're looking at the jobs that are getting offered to them.